Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today's episode is a conversation with Rabbi Yehuda Sarna, the chief rabbi of Dubai and the chaplain at New York University. On the show, Rabbi Wilds and Rabbi Sarna discuss the historic Abraham Accords between Israel and the United Arab Emirates and what it's like being a rabbi in a predominantly Muslim country, and how the pandemic has altered the campus outreach that Rabbi Sarna does at NYU. So, without any further ado, here's their conversation. Uh, Hello and welcome. Uh, It is a great honor and pleasure uh, to uh, come to you Facebook Live, also our podcast. Uh, We have a very, very special treat uh, this afternoon, and that is to hear from a colleague and a friend, Rabbi Yehuda Sarna, uh, who's wearing a lot of kippot these days, a lot of hats these days. And I want to just thank Rabbi Sarna in advance. He's extraordinarily busy. He was always a busy rabbi. He's even more busy now. And I just want to thank you for taking time out of your very busy schedule to be with us. It's a great, great honor. Uh, rabbi Sarna is the chief rabbi of the Jewish Council of the Emirates. And it's a position which he was only recently appointed to in 2019. And he is leading uh, the community, the Jewish community in religious and spiritual matters, represents them uh, in government and organizational um, matters. And he is also, and has been for many years, the university chaplain and executive director at the Bronfman Center for Student Life, Jewish Student Life at NYU, New York University. And I'm sure many of our listeners MJ participants, many of our people um, have uh, been to NYU, either to the college or graduate programs. They know of Rabbi Sarna's amazing work. Uh, he's also a senior fellow of the, quote, Many Institute for Multi-Faith Leadership at NYU, where he designs educational experiences and curriculum to, chain, to train the next generation in interfaith action. Um, Rabbi Sarna lives here um, in New York City, married to Dr. Michelle Sarna. Uh, uh, Michelle Waldman Sonner is a psychologist. They believe I and her have six uh, children. And thank you so much for being with us, uh, Rabbi Sarna. It's a great honor to be with you. And uh, always, always, always admire from, you know, living downtown, but always looking uptown at the amazing work that, uh, that you're doing. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I want to jump right in uh, because this is something which is like just amazing to me and it's amazing to a lot of people. 2019, you were appointed as the first chief rabbi of the Jewish community of the UAE, United Arab Emirates. How did that opportunity come about? You know, um, I never got the call, you know, I'm not jealous or anything like that, but like, where where did that come from? And what's it like being a rabbi in a predominantly Muslim country? Well, look, the first time I went to the UAE was in uh, January of 2010. And, uh, I, I was invited to come by by New York University because NYU, as you might know, has campuses not only in New York City, which is obviously the headquarters, that's the mothership, but has campuses all over the world, six in Europe, uh, one in Australia, one in uh, Buenos Aires. And uh, NYU was looking to establish itself in the Middle East. And so, of course, Israel was one natural choice. And then uh, the other choice, the other opportunity that came up was uh, in the United Arab Emirates in Abu Dhabi, and of course, you know, establishing a, a branch of NYU in Tel Aviv was had its complications, but nothing out of the ordinary. But you can imagine establishing a uh, a, a Western style 
liberal uh, institution of higher learning in the heart of the Arab world uh, comes along with a whole other set of challenges. And one of those challenges is how comfortable would Jewish students, Jewish faculty members, Jewish administrators be um, in, in participating and being full members of the university community uh, in the Arab world. And, and so I was invited to actually help interview uh, the first class of students who were coming from around the world to participate, uh, to seek, they seek admission at this four year, it's a four year college, NYU Abu Dhabi. And, um, and I think it was important for the university that, uh, that not just, you know, esteemed faculty and others were there to interview them, but uh, actually that uh, the rabbi of the university was there. And I would say it wasn't just important for the university, it was something that I believe was also important for the Abu Dhabi partners. And they had a long history uh, of being tolerant and open to all religions. I know it doesn't quite fit the Western stereotype of what Arab is, but um, it's something that's definitely in, the, in their DNA. And I started going back uh, once, twice, three times a year uh, since 2010. And especially once campus life got started, anytime I would go, I'd organize a Shabbat dinner and, and assist usually from a distance, celebration of Hagim holidays and uh, you know for everything from Pesach seders to Rosh Hashanah meals, um, Yom Kippur service. And, uh, but those things really depended uh, on who happened to be there at the time, which faculty member was gonna take an initiative. Was there a student leader who had a strong Jewish background? And it, I learned in 2016 that there was a regular Shabbat Minyan that was meeting in people's homes in Dubai, which is about an hour, an hour and a half drive away. It's the neighboring Emirate. It's one of the seven, another one of the seven uh, United Arab Emirates. And, and that was a really, it was quite amazing uh, experience to meet this. And, and, and I'm just going to jump in. So in all of those years of, of shuttling back and forth, you're basically representing NYU but you're a, a rabbi in a Muslim country. Did you have any, um, I mean, I'm so happy to hear, and it's definitely not fitting the Western stereotype, but you said that they are really open. Uh, did you have any anti-Semitism, any negative experiences at just being a Jew, Forget, let alone being a rabbi? No, I didn't have any negative experiences. If anything, I had to confront the my own stereotypes that I had of, uh, of Arabs. I mean, the first time I went, I was, sure that if I would be left alone for a second, I would be kidnapped or, or stabbed or something. And, uh, and anytime I felt those surges of fear, uh, I really had to, you know, confront those in myself, you know, where were those coming from? Why was I experiencing that? And that was really transformational for me, but no, I didn't experience any anti-Semitism. In 2010, the only thing I experienced was, um, was a certain kind of, uh, you know, not even being noticed that I was Jewish, even though I was I wear my kippah everywhere, I wear my tzitzis everywhere. Um, but uh, I didn't think that, um, you know, as someone said to me this, uh, before I went, they said, you know, people will notice that you're uh, that you're a Westerner. They won't even even occur to them that you're that you're Jewish. The first time I went through customs, um, you know, and, and I had to go through customs because I was on a Canadian passport, and at that point, anybody who's coming on a Canadian passport had to get a visa. So I had this one-on-one uh, -on -one interview with a, a border patrol person and he looked through my passport and it's not like my identity as a Jew is hidden. It's wearing a yarmulke, it's wearing my tzitzis, 
My name is Zuhuda, which in Arabic means Jew. This really stamps my passport. Check all the boxes. So <laughs> in this one-on-one -on -one interview, I was actually also carrying my Talisman fillet, of course. And, uh, 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 you wearing? Were you wearing your Talisman's film? I mean, what the oh, heck? No, 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 no. But I was, I was, I had my uh, 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 frozen lager, filter fish, and some collar rolls, and you know, enough Shabbos food. So, uh, so finishes meeting, and then and then he stamps my passport, and then he looks at me and he says, "Tell me before you go, where did you get that that kafia from? I've never seen such a small kafia." So I said, listen, uh, I thought it would be obvious, but uh, you know, my name is Yehuda. I have Israeli stamps in my passport. I'm coming from New York City. I'm Jewish. And, and this is not a kafia, And it's a kippah, same root. It's a kippah. And I got it at J. Levine Bookstore. And when, as soon as I tell him all that, he, he, you know, he, he pushes his chair back and he just laughs. It, it, it hadn't even occurred to him. Right. And I got to tell you, 10 years later, when we went for Rosh Hashanah, I went for Sukkot with my family. We're going through customs. We're going through, you know, passport control. And we're, as soon as we pull up, we're being greeted with uh, Shalom. And as each of my pass kids' passports is being checked, they say, okay, Moshe, is that like Musa? David, is that like Daoud? Uh, you know, it took us longer than usual to get through through board, uh, passport control, but not because we we're being interrogated, but uh, because you know, with every name, the similarities between the cultures are being acknowledged. So, it, look, it's it's been a a very very exciting time. I think surprisingly unprecedented, and um, and uh, and I gotta say, you know, working with the community in Dubai since 2016 and seeing the different kind of issues that they've been confronting. When I met them in, 2000, in 2016, it was right before Hanukkah, and I give a shir at the person who's, who later became the president of the community, Ross Creel, 20 people there, each one from a different country, and, and decided to give a shir on the placement of the Hanukkah. Where does the Hanukkah go? Inside the house or outside the house? Of course, outside the house was the original. That's what the Gemara says. By, by the door so everybody can see, pursue Anissa. But then later on, times of Shema, you see, you have to move it indoors when you're afraid to be publicly recognized as a Jew. And when I shared these two perspectives with them, it was like touching a raw nerve. I mean, that was exactly the negotiation that people were experiencing. On the one hand, here they, here they were, Jewish people, first new Jewish community to be established in the Arab world in centuries. Uh, people who had moved there, not because they uh, were, were refugees from another country, not because they weren't allowed to leave. They came there because it was a country they felt safe. There was economic opportunity and it was their decision to move. And still, you know, I had to negotiate that public-private boundary of when do you disclose that you're Jewish when you're not? When do your kids disclose to which friends at school that they're Jewish? And, and uh, you could see, you know, symbolically, they didn't know where to place the, the Hanukkah. Now, fast forward, here we are, Hanukkah. I mean, in front of, I don't know, there were like Hanukkah lightings in, I don't know, a dozen hotels around Dubai, 50,000 Israeli tourists. Uh, I mean, everything. I mean, you, you see the images. Go online, Mark. You, you see the, the, uh, uh, the images in, uh, of Ben Gurion Airport, packed, packed, throngs of Israelis boarding those planes, those, those uh, I don't know, it's 10 daily flights. 
and now it's soon to be 28 um, and that's just to Dubai not even including Abu Dhabi which is in March so what we're witnessing is a a is a totally total you know redrawing of the mental map for many Israelis about the region that they live in and let's see where it goes I mean we're we're at the beginning of this process not just with the UAE but of course with other uh, Arab countries and we don't know what are your thoughts on that and we're, I'm really curious I, I had the honor to interview uh, Michael Oren he's spoken at MGE and um, and and he said you know that whether you like the president, you didn't like the president, that his opinion was from a purely historical perspective, and he's quite an accomplished historian, that these Abraham Accords are, because they're normalizing relations, he felt they're more dramatic, more significant than what happened at King David with Jordan and Egypt, um, because there it was an agreement basically to stop killing each other, no more war, but we don't have normalized relations with our Egyptian and Jordanian neighbors. Um, and here, you know, they called it the Abrahamic Accords because there's supposed to be some sort of cultural exchange. Do you feel that that is an accurate depiction and therefore like it's it, it's just on a higher level it's, and it's like a new era? Yeah, it's if anything, it's, it's understating the case. It's understating it. I mean, look, Jordan, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, multiple wars have been fought between these countries. The UAE and Israel never went to war. No one has blood on their hands. That, that makes a big difference. Um, if anything, there was, there's actually a sense of, of admiration and respect which preceded between the countries, between the cultures, which preceded the signing of the Abraham Accords. Not that, the, for that, not, not that full normalization was expected, I was very surprised by that. Full normalization right away. I mean, shocking. Uh, I would have expected, in, in, you know, in increment increments. Right. But what we observed is that um, we don't know exactly, you know, how this is going to transform the region because the normalization with the UAE. UAE, and if you understand, as as a as a country, it's not it's not. Uh, you can't look at it just and and think of a country with the geographically contained borders. The influence of the UAE, the ability, first of all, has some of the largest airports, largest airlines. They have more destinations. You know, the airlines fly all over the world. They're geographically located so that they can capture both east and west. And uh, as one Emirati business person put it, he said, the, uh, Israel is, is, might be known as a startup nation, but the UAE can be a great scale-up nation uh, because of their, of their reach. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think that, the, that it's in many ways, it's a, it's a gateway to the rest of the Middle East. So let's see what happens. But uh, undoubtedly, when people keep talking about war and peace, what war and peace means is that it's not just about an agreement between militaries, uh, as was the case with Egypt and Jordan. Uh, and it's not just an agreement between banks or between corporations. It's an understanding between peoples. And that, I think, is, what, is what's underway. But and, that also has to be, yes, has to be developed. Right. Civil society engagement doesn't happen on its own. I mean, 
the engagement of civil society, the development of real understanding and not just transactions, but real understanding, which, which will stick, it will hold in times of, of difficulty. And there will be times of difficulty. Relations will be strained at times. But if people know each other, if people understand each other's narratives, um, insecurities, histories, uh, uh, desired futures, then we're talking. I mean, that, this is so exciting to me. And I'll tell you, as a rabbi, and I know you're particularly sensitive to this because of all of your interfaith dialogue with the Muslim community over the years, but it's always upset me so much that, you know, there's so many similarities between Jewish and Muslim traditions, culture, theology. Uh, we have so much more in common with them than we do with some of our other, you know, cousins, if you will, in other faith systems. Um, and I'm really, I'm just excited. Are, are you at all nervous? Um, and I really want to stay away from politics. I try to stay away from politics, but I'm really asking whether or not you, does it matter who the next president is for, for this to continue? How much of this is based on some of the Trump broker deals or how much of this is a real, as you're seeing, as you're beginning to describe a real engagement of different cultures that will, you know, that's grassroots, irrespective of the leadership. Look, I, I think that there are, there are many, many, many hands in, in this process, in this breakthrough. And it is a breakthrough. And, uh, and um, I don't imagine any change with the, you know, change in the administration. I think, if anything, the, of, the, uh, of the three sides, we're just talking about the UAE, Israel, and the United States for a second, that was the real breakthrough. Uh, the country that had the most, uh, the most to lose, you know, that really took the risk of all of each of the three was, was the United Arab Emirates. You know, the the, the deal in Israel, in Israel, you know, eighty percent were supportive. Eighty percent were supportive of normalization over annexation, which is what most people voted for in these. So you see that dramatic turn. That's how popular it was. It was supported, you know, real on a bipartisan basis in the United States. It's trickier in the UAE. You know, the, the, the leadership really took a risk. I think before the Abraham Accords, the polling was showing about 20% of Emirati citizens supported normalization. You know, post the signing of the agreement, I'm sure it's higher. But what was that, that number? Was, I missed that. What was that number? 20%. Oh, okay. According to one of the polls that I saw, and look, of course, people can come along and they can say, you know, how is the polling done? And I, I don't really know the answer. I don't know if you can verify that poll, but that's um, that's what I was saying. So, um, so it, it was certainly a risk, especially full normalization was a risk, and and part of the risk was that the that the current leaders of the, the two other signatories, both Israel and the United States would see the agreement as a validation of a particular doctrine about the Middle East, which may or may not be true, or may or may not be accurate, may or may not serve in the long-term interest. But nevertheless, the UAE went ahead and, um, and, and made the agreement. Um, very, very bold step, and was done in a very modest way, I have to say, on the part of the UAE. Uh, there was no, no kind of large public touting of, you know, uh, we told you so, or no, no. I mean, it was done quite modestly. And um, and I think we, rather than any political party or political leader patting themselves on the back, frankly, my view is that there should be an acknowledgement 
of gratitude towards the um, the country that actually took the biggest risk. Wow. Well, that's I, I really appreciate you sharing that because I, I didn't know that. And I, I think a lot of our listeners uh, are largely unaware of that. Um, you know, the perception out there is that there's a common enemy, Iran, and, uh, you know, this is a you know, a necessary evil, if you will, that these countries. You know, it's interesting when you, you talk talk to people in the UAE. I wouldn't even say that Iran is the first thing that comes up. Mm-hmm. Really, you know, the main priority for them is uh, is unlocking the economic and cultural potential of the region, making the Middle East a better place. Uh, solving environmental problems, solving medical problems, solving economic problems, providing great uh, working opportunities for young people. The Arab demographic is disproportionately uh, younger and not wanting to be burdened by a almost a century old conflict, which they see as holding back the region uh, from from developing. So that is more likely to be the, the narrative and the kind of the priorities as expressed. That's one the single most compelling argument that's being made internally, and I say compelling in that that's what people are responding to, is is is, is where has no gotten us? You know, for all these decades, the Arab world has been in lockstep and saying no to Israel. And really, where has that gotten the Arab world? Uh, where has that gotten the Palestinians? And I think it would be a mistake, grave mistake, for anybody, especially supporters of Israel, to assume that this means that the Palestinians, you know, the Palestinian issue and the future of Palestinian state, that that question is just off the table, doesn't need to be discussed, that these peace agreements in one way or another supplant or, or, or cover paper over um, the issue of Palestinians, that it's not going away. There's millions of Palestinians who are living uh, and don't have the uh, ability to self-govern. And that's not going away. There's millions of people. And, and if anything, Israel becoming intertwined with the destinies of other Arab countries, which are close by, um, it, it reshuffles the deck in the long term in ways that I don't know if many Israelis quite recognize just yet. What that could mean, what, what that could mean for yeah, the I mean, Palestinians. Yeah, I mean, I mean, think about it even from a psychological standpoint, a cultural standpoint. And, and, and uh, if your perception of all Arabs uh, is formed only through the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right. and your only exposure to Palestinians, let's say from the Israeli standpoint, is, you know, uh, labor laborers and but you don't really have an opportunity to meet Palestinians as as equals and therefore that's your image of the Arab entire Arab world are 330 350 million Arabs <laughs> then that affects your politics but hold on a second once you start meeting you know the uh, uh, first of all there are many Palestinians who are very educated very intelligent and 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 some very very prosperous but then uh, when you start, when you actually have the opportunity to to meet other other Arabs who are not, you know, enmeshed in this conflict, then your whole perception of what is Arab begins to change. Think about it: if you were if you were if you're a Sephardic Jew 
a Mizrahi Jew in Israel, and your experience and your, your understanding of what Arab is, is formed by the people who you felt, you know, kicked you out of your home country, right? And those are the stories you're raising. But now you have the opportunity to go back and meet their grandchildren, you know, who are, who are, that's not, and, and, and you say, well, hold on a second. So now if I can uh, meet Arabs face to face in a way that doesn't feel conflictual, if anything, it feels where we're, our, our futures are interdependent, how will that change the way Israelis relate to Palestinians? So it's not looking through to the rest of the Arab world through Palestinians, it's looking at Palestinians through these through the lens of these uh, of these Arab countries and different Arab cultures. So I think what we're going to observe, my guess, is a reckoning with um, with stereotypes, much like I did, stereotypes that we have of the Arab world. Uh, and I guarantee you, those fifty thousand Israelis who went to Dubai in the month of December, uh, they're coming back with a different picture. Wow. So let, let me let me jump on that those 50,000 Israelis going to Dubai. Um, and maybe this is a good transition to hear a little about your amazing work at NYU, which I'm familiar with, but not necessarily all of our listeners. Are you at all concerned? And again, maybe I'm jumping the gun, but down the road that we're gonna start having um, assimilation into marriage issues with our Arab cousins? Um, I, I don't expect, uh, I don't expect intermarriage on a on a you know significant scale um, because I, I you know it's not I don't think that that's the kind of thing that um, frankly you know uh, uh, I don't know I don't expect it it's not the thing that I would expect. It doesn't feel like that that would unfold. I mean I know that for example the only country that I'm aware of where. Jews and Arabs have actually married each other is Morocco, which was the most recent, just because the king of Morocco had a very, in certain times, was, was very positively predisposed to the Jews. And the more comfortable we tend to feel in a country, you know, it's the holiday of Hanukkah right yeah. now. No, but I would actually, I would, I would say it a little differently if you were to ask me, what is the biggest challenge to our, our, our notion, common notions, conventional notions of Jewish identity as a result of the accord? I think in time, not right away, but in time, we're going to meet many people with Jewish ancestry, a Jewish heritage from the Arab world who are reclaiming that Jewish identity. Just like you have, by the way, in Eastern Europe, certain parts of Europe, right. Spain, or in the United States, like New Mexico, you know, you have people who after um, generations will come and say, oh, by the way, you know, I'm aware of it. Jewish ancestor, and that um, is is happening quietly. Not it's not organized, it's not a movement. But there are many people who, for example, were regarded as the Jew in their town in the middle of Saudi Arabia. You know, or oh, there's one family I know, which uh, where the family about seventy years ago, eighty years ago, traveled from maybe long, maybe hundred years ago, traveled from Yemen through Saudi Arabia on their way to. Israel, then mandate Palestine. And one branch of the family stayed in Saudi and basically assimilated. And the other branch went on to um, to Israel. And wow. in fact, one of them became a member of Knesset and was a is a rabbi. And uh, his cousins live in Saudi Arabia. 
And, oh and the way the fellow I met from Saudi, the way he found out that his family was Jewish, at least in part, was that he woke up one morning when he was 11 years old and he saw his father crying. He said, why are you crying? He said, um, well, we have a second cousin who was just killed in a terrorist attack in Israel. Oh, yeah. so, so there are going to be many connections that, that uh, we don't right now have the categories to process. Uh, and it's going to change the way we understand Jewish identity. It's going to change, you know, what, what uh, you know, the, the, the boundary. Many people assume that um, Arab and Jew, from a linguistic standpoint, are in opposition to each other. And it's going to change. I, I, I'm just so excited because, you know, you, you made a comment before about <clears throat> Svartic, Mizrahi Jews, their perception of Arabs being kicked out of X amount of Arab countries in the 1950s and onward after the creation of the state. And now Jews are choosing to live there or visit travel there. We have friends who just went for Hanukkah on some uh, kosher program, you know, and I have a son learning in Israel and I'm trying to figure out how I can go visit him. Somebody said, if you go to Dubai, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he can come to Dubai. We can go to Dubai. Nobody have to quarantine. Yeah. The main issue, Mark, because I'm in the same situation. I have a daughter of Migdalos. The main issue is, is the, the kid getting back into Israel. Israel. Yeah. So anyway, but we can talk about that offline. Well, I'm, I'm I'm going Mir uh, on 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 Shabbos for about two weeks. If any of your listeners oh. want to join, you know, more than welcome to oh to come with me. You're going to Dubai for two weeks. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So do you do you go with your family when you go? I mean, you have during Corona, I would only go with my family. Yeah, I don't want to get. I don't want to because of the uncertainty of coronavirus. I don't want to get stuck on the other side of the world. Uh, you know, not with my family. So. We went all together for Shoshana. We went all together for Sukkot. Um, you know, my kids are, are in school at SAR. Thank God they've been in person and they've been really enjoying school. They've been learning a lot. Um, so otherwise, they definitely would have spent more time there over the course of these past months. But but the big news, I would say, that these past few months has been that um, Rabbi Dr. Eli Abadi, who, you know, as you know, used to be the rabbi at the Safra Synagogue up until 2017, really built that shul. Rabbi Abadi is now moved to Dubai to serve as the senior rabbi. And he was born in Beirut. He left as a refugee um, to Mexico, grew up in Mexico, came to the United States at age 18, practicing medical doctor. And uh, Rabbi speaks eight languages. Mother, mother tongue is Arabic. And now he's back in the region. And he's the president of of the organization Justice for Jews from Arab Countries. You know, he's really carried that flag. He's been holding up the banner of Sephardic culture. And for him to make that return and to really be the spiritual leader of the Jews who've chosen to make their life there um, and to be a resource to the region, I can't even tell you um, what kind of response he's getting from the local Emirati who are just who were thrilled to hear his Arabic, who were enamored by the story of return um, and their profile piece, from profile piece, both in English speaking media based in the region, as well as in Arabic media, Arabic radio. I mean, they, they, they hear the story. It's affirming for them. It, the reason why it's affirming is because if you are the leader of an Arab country and you look back on the past hundred years or so, 
and you see that by and large, there's been an exodus of non-Muslims from your country. Uh, and you have to ask yourself the question, where have all the Christians gone? Where have all the Jews gone? Why did they leave? Why aren't they here? And they were here for, for millennia on the Arabian Peninsula. Where are they? So uh, the fact that you have a country like the United Arab Emirates that's building churches, building mosques, building Hindu temples, building Mormon churches, uh, and bringing those people back or bringing them there for the first time, it's a very, very powerful statement. Very bold. I um, this must be so exciting for you because you're really at the center of it, and uh, it's a new phase in Jewish history, really. So I, um, Kalakavot to you. For... I gotta tell you, I don't feel like I'm at the center of it, but I feel like at the center. You know, I feel is at the center of it is Avram Avinu, <laughs> Avram, Sarah, Hagar. They're really at the center of it. You know. Um... Rabbi Sachs, uh, a blessed memory, I know you knew well, um, has a beautiful piece in one of in one of the covenant conversations on the return of Yishmael and Yitzchak when they came back to bury. Uh, I'm, I'm blanking on it. I'll try to find this Torah. It's an exquisite piece of Torah where the uh, reference to Be'er Lachai Ro'i is mentioned numerous times. And what happened in Be'er Lachairo'i, this, this locale in Israel, in, um, in wherever it is exactly, um, but a place where um, Jews and Muslims would sort of come back together. He's got this great piece. I'll, I'll try to dig it up. But, you know, you read it and like, you know, you sound a little naive, sweet. And now, you know, now it's actually possible. It's actually possible for our two faiths to to have some sort of connection and, you know, and, and nobody thought this would, this could be a path for the Palestinian Israeli conflict. I mean, that would just be so awesome. Well, let's, I mean, let's see, let's see. Um, but you're, you're right. I mean, first of all, Rabbi Sachs, um, you know, who, who I really got to know in the five years that he, he's, he had like a one month a year uh, appointment at, at NYU. I miss him dearly. I mean, I think about him literally every single day. Um, yeah, and he was, you know, as soon as I was appointed chief rabbi in February 2019, he was kind enough to write, you know, write the community a letter of congratulations and an endorsement, which I really so appreciative of, even though certainly at the time, it almost sounded like a joke. I mean, but but the power of that story of, of family reunion is, is, uh, is very, very powerful. I mean, that's the language, that's the truth. Now, in, in the summer of 2019, so a, a year and change ago, uh, the Ministry of Tolerance of the UAE wanted to put together a kind of a mashup of a bunch of religious leaders' sermons and, uh, and to, to film them on, on locale and and uh, so I gave a short speech, and it was basically about family reunion. It's related to that Torah that you just shared. And uh, and the end, they put together this mashup, and they actually called it family reunion. And it had people from many different faiths, but a dozen different religious leaders who were speaking, uh, each one with their own depth. But there's something about that. I mean, 
the idea of a family reunion. And, and that's one of the things that's so exciting about the Abrahamic family house, that complex in Abu Dhabi that the government is building, which is gonna have a mosque, a church, and a synagogue together in the same complex, separate buildings, but actually each the same height, you know, which is a powerful statement. Yeah. yeah. The inspiration for the architecture of the synagogue is the sukkah, has some skylights and etc. And they're connected underground through a, a uh, an educational center and a, uh, an exhibit, and above ground by a garden. Um, wow! So look, and that that's I think that's going to be the place of a family reunion. I mean, you think about the power of that you know that kind of statement. Where in the United States is there something like that? Where where in Israel is there something like that? I mean, it's un unbelievably powerful. It, they're, they're building. They're building this not for next year, not for 10 years from now. They're building this as a world monument for, 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 for hundreds of years, God willing. That's incredible. Tell me as a university chaplain, I mean, you are ministering to all faiths. Um, how is it? How has it been for you? I know the amazing work that you're doing with Jewish students. What is it like working with Christian and Muslim students at NYU and um, and, and are they aware of what you're doing and the other hat you're wearing now in the other part of the world? And what's, what's their reaction? Um, the truth is that uh, there's been a really, uh, you know, um, I don't know how to say this, a, a, a very, it's very strange nature of this transformation which has happened, um, you know, happened first of all over the summer the Abraham Accords. And then we haven't, their classes are in person, but there's no kind of communal campus life. So there hasn't been a lot of, you know, public conversation about this. And, um, and uh, certainly I could say the Jewish students are very, very excited about really having this open channel to engage, having NYU Abu Dhabi, having my, you know, my involvement to help open doors. And there are going to be more opportunities for, uh, Jewish students at NYU to to really you know to engage. Um, look, for many others, it's not it, it hasn't been um, front page news for many of them. I mean, you, you look at you know of course when the deal was signed, it was on it made headlines, and and uh, but beyond that, the truth is it's not in every in everyday people's consciousness. I, I got to tell you also that even within the Jewish news in the United States. Like American Jewish outlets, um, I would not, you know, on social media sometimes the images circulate, but there's not a lot of in-depth, you know, reporting or, or or articles being written. I mean, I've written in Boev a bit, um, but in terms of journalists writing, you don't have so much. If you go to the Times of Israel and you see like half a third of the stories every day are that. Um, when you compare that to you know local Jewish newspapers or websites here. You don't have it in the same way. So I think. Well, why, why do you think that is? Is it, is it because it was wrapped up with the Trump administration? So people are. That's I mean, one. Yeah, absolutely. That's one. Um, and number two is that it is um, that it's just it's further away. Uh, the other thing is psychologically, as one Israeli diplomat put it, uh, Israelis have a need to feel loved because they're, they often feel so hated. And Arabs have a need to feel respected because they're so often humiliated. And that craving in the Israeli psyche to feel loved and embraced 
I think is part of what is so dramatic here and part of what is contributing to so much of the enthusiasm. And American Jews, I don't know if, if we quite feel that same need. And so this agreement is a big deal, unquestionably changes the map, but it, um, it, it has not been quite yet the same source of euphoria, energy, obsession that it, it is in Israel. In Israel, it's captured people's imagination. You know, it's transforming the region. I'm just always looking as an outreach, you know, person, I'm always looking for something to excite my students and, you know, take a little deeper probe into your Judaism because look what's going on over there. Look at this, look at, you know, and uh, it, it, it's, um, it's been a little, uh, I don't know what the word is, a little disappointing to me that something that, like that you, uh, Michael Oren, uh, I interviewed Senator Lieberman about this, you know, really smart in the know people are like blown away by this. And the rest of us are kind of like shrugging our shoulders. To be honest with you, I think a lot of people are sleeping. I think a lot of people are sleeping. It's just COVID also, I guess. I don't know. COVID no, 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 and, and presidential elections. And a lot of you are sleeping. This is humongous, humongous. That's amazing. Well, Kolkovo, for you doing it, just tell me, I, I wanted a little, um, how is, uh, how, how things doing at NYU with the, the Jewish students, Jewish life? Um, I well, mean, we made a decision in the summer that we were going to do whatever we could. We decided that we were going to be in three places. We were going to be online and we were going to be outdoors and we were going to be where we're needed most. And I would say one of the things that I'm most proud of is the way our students have really filled the gaps. They've stepped into the, the vacuum of volunteer needs in Lower Manhattan, Lower East Side, working with organizations, both Jewish and uh, general, to provide for people who need meals, people who need a phone call, people who need um, you know, any other items for winter. Um, our students went to the Javits Center back in April and helped deliver uh, needs for, for Pesach, for patients and personnel who were there, uh, including matzahs and haggadahs, which they took from the Bronfen Center and returned. Uh, so, so and, and really, really the main message that I wanted to communicate to our students is that this is a dark chapter of, uh, of the world. I mean, a lot of people dying, people getting sick, most recovering, not all. And uh, rather than allowing this chapter to just be written for them, they have to help write, write it. And they want, I wanted this to be a moment for them when they can look back and say, yeah, I lived through one of the darkest chapters of the world. And here's what I did. Here is how, here's the little bit of light that I brought to bring in some Hanukkah. And here's the way that that experience of being on the side of the givers and not just the side of the takers, the side of the people who experience empathy, experience care, and, and lend a, a hand, and not on the side of the people who are just, uh, you know, holed up in some, you know, tower until the storm passes. I think that's important. Lot yeah. like you, I mean, primary has been, you know, people's safety and we never put students in, in harm's way, uh, but we certainly challenge them to be where they are needed most. Yeah, you know, I, I've struggled a lot um, with 
what you just shared, how much do we need to be there for others? And how much does, let's say, MGE, or in your case, NYU, need to be there for our... We have a lot of, unfortunately, you know, we're in a young population, 20s, 30s, so there isn't as much of a health risk. But people are cooped up in their tiny little apartments, pretty much isolated. And some of the other effects of COVID, not the medical ones, but the psychological ones are pretty real. Um, but I, 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 I've said the same thing all along, which is, you want to help yourself, you need to get out and do something for someone else. Yes. That's therapy. Uh, I agree with that. And, and, but look, I'll, I'll tell you what I also, what I also believe is that uh, people like you uh, who are providing a sense of community to people who otherwise, you know, would be all alone. And also at a point in their life when you really need a, a sense of community, especially in a city like New York, you know, you, you need your urban tribe. And that's something that you're giving people, even if it's online. You, by the way, you need your urban tribe. That, that, that could work. <laughs> uh, wait, I want to jump in just, and, and, and I know it's, we're coming to the end of our hour, but what are you planning on doing? Because I'm literally this week at a crossroads. I also decided we're going to be outside, period. Yeah. And we, we were in Central Park. We were in Amsterdam Burger on 93rd and Columbus. Downtown, we were on the, whatever, all of our three sites. I think this weekend is the first Shabbat that we can't, it's just too cold. And I can't get enough heaters to heat my roof. Um, are you okay going inside? Um, but let's say for a minyan, for services, for classes. Well, and if listen, usually what we do is we just wait for the MJE newsletter to come out and then we make a decision. So yeah, because you can just you can tell all the attorneys they can rely on, you know, whatever negligence, God forbid. I mean, um, no, because uh we're going in this Shabbos and we've got six feet masks, HEPA filters, we're gonna open the windows. Uh, and I have a lot of actually um very concerned citizens, people who are very careful, ranging to, to anti-maskers, you know, who think the whole thing's a hoax, you know. Um, but there's no, I, I, yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I think you have to say that masks are, you know, all the data shows that masks make a big difference and that from a cost efficiency standpoint, unquestionably, that masks are the best bang for the buck for defeating the coronavirus. And um, and now that the vaccine is on its way, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it's very, it's, it's important for people to have the right information. And I actually think that religious leaders have played a um, sometimes neutral, sometimes very positive and sometimes negative uh, role in, in providing information or misinformation. I think it has to be corrected, but I, I think it's right. I think you're right. I think some people, as as more services we, we may go inside, as more services come indoors, um, we're going to lose some people. And every, every what I'm what we're going to do is we're going to keep robust online activity going. And for those who feel comfortable, but you should you should have a certain degree of confidence that with enough space between people and everybody's wearing a mask, and yeah, it's not comfortable, but someone has to be the you know the, the mask whip, you know, to make sure that someone lowers their mask or whatever. Or I, I, learned, I learned that, by the way, that you need, I, I davened in some shul and, and I saw somebody walking over and they were like a little rolling their eyes. It's the only part of their face I could see and they were rolling their eyes. But then I realized that MG, when you, you know, 
you, if you don't have someone assigned to that, you really need, you need somebody. You, 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 need, you need, you need. And that's actually one of the things that NYU, the university in general, has done so well is they've had public health, uh, uh, about hundreds of students who are what they call public health ambassadors. It's written up in the New York Times. And basically they're, they're paid to sit there anytime, like in, in lunch rooms or uh, any time that students are gathering to go, you know, you know for, for, for like to get food or to get anything that out of necessity they're gathering for, there's somebody there whose job it is to, to, to make sure that people keep protocol. And because of that, NYU is not closed. I mean, so many other colleges have closed. NYU is not still in person and the infection rate is very, very low. So, and, and the, the evidence that we've learned, we kind of NYU is that even in classes, it has not led to spread. If people are six to eight feet apart, and wearing masks the whole time and diligent about it. So you have what to go on. I think if you're indoors. I think, first of all, I'm, I'm happy you shared that. I, and I just want to add to that. My son, I have a son in Yeshiva University now. Um, also have, have, they have not, they've been able to stay open, very strict. And they have, they do the, um, the saliva testing twice a week. Exactly. And, and they're tracing, they're this, they're that, like we're on it and they've been able to stay open. And, uh, you know, these, these are anecdotal, but these are two institutions in New York City that are able to be open. I think that's a huge... Yeah, I mean, it's, the truth is, is that it's not just anecdotal. It, it, it is very heavily supported by data. I'm sure both institutions are, 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 are tracking. I know I can speak for NYU. I mean, the, the amount of data that they're storing, in, I mean, uh, unreal. So, so and they, they didn't... They haven't loosened any restrictions without having a clear indication based on data that, that it's the time to do that. So uh, I think I think you know within reason you could feel confident, but you also have to be ready that like sometimes things may not work. But it's really about it's about managing uh, you know ma to a certain extent managing risk. So it's almost like okay if you do this, I'm saying I'm going to go to shul, and maybe there's some other things that I may not do. Right. You know just to control that risk balance. You know, I'll have a little more exposure here, but a little less exposure over there. Um, right, so. the whole social component too. One, one of the challenges I'm sure you have that we have is that, you know, in some of the straightforward Orthodox synagogues, it's very, you know, right down to business, come, pray, leave. It's not gonna work for our population. No, 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 I hear you. You know, so, so I mean, this is one of the main things that I've been thinking about with uh with the downtown minion which is not for college students but it's for for people in their 20s and 30s you know further downtown it's a great great minion i have a lot of students who love going there yeah so and they're also very similar i mean I, look I, I just took a page out of the out of your playbook uh and um then people are looking for the you know a sense of community something inspiring torah singing together feeling community together that's hard to do. It's just hard to do. So, look, we might, we might, uh, you know. I'll tell you one thing. Yeah. One thing that's been. You have a good idea. You have a good idea. Just. I just did, it's a small little thing, but it, it changed. Like Friday night, we davened. I kept the the service to like forty five minutes. We were having some refreshments. We were outside. Uh, we put, you know, refreshments means that you're handed a packet a separate thing and you go and eat it <laughs> on your own so i just said you know what everybody just say just get up and say your name where you're from there you go you know because first of all we don't have so many people it's 25 30 you can't have that many people anyway yeah. 
And it just made, you know, somebody came over me and said, thank you so much. I just feel like nobody's recognizing me under this mask. And I'm so-and-so, I'm from New Orleans. We have this woman who's on our fellowship program. She's, she came back, she's been with her family in New Orleans for like six months and she's finally back. If I hadn't done that, she would have prayed, grabbed a little packet and gone home. Yeah. And look, I, it's, it, I, I'm sure you feel a tremendous sense of fulfillment from, your, from the work that you do and you should. Uh, you should feel it more than you, than you currently do because I know how deep your impact is. Uh, but one of the things that I keep telling myself is that um, although, you know, we have 25, 30 people, not 100 people, the impact on each and every person who comes, you know, who the rest, the, this is the one thing, one time a week that they're coming out, one time a week that they're spending with other people, the one time a week that they actually have a feeling of a sense of community, this experience means so much more than what it, it would otherwise mean. So. I think you just have to believe that, that I know for, you have to work twice as hard to accomplish, you know, a quarter of what you usually do, but you just have to believe in the, in the power of, uh, of what it is that you're doing. Thank you. That, I, that is, I really find that helpful and inspirational and it's, it's the truth. You're not always feeling it because it's exactly what you said. You work four times as hard for one quarter of the people, um, but it's not about the numbers. It's the impact. And I, I appreciate that. Um, Sounds like you were bitten by the, the Rebbe, the bug of the Rebbe over there. Um, anyway, I really wanna thank you for, um, for coming on and for sharing. I think I've always been a huge, huge fan of your work uh, at NYU. Uh, you also have trained some amazing people over the years working with you. God should continue to bless you and your beautiful family with continued success at NYU. And I'm, you know, I'm a big believer that the, the Almighty knows who is the right people for what projects. You are the perfect person uh, to be able to advance um, some more peaceful relations between ourselves and our Muslim cousins. And uh, God bless you and uh, the work you're doing over there. It's just, just you should go Mechael Chael. Amen. Well, let me tell you, Mark, 19 years ago, you may not remember exactly where you were, but I remember because you came and spoke to our Smicha class when I was in Smicha and talked about this new thing that you were starting. You're very excited. And, and uh, and uh, and you've always remained a, a role model for me, and not just in your accomplishments, of course, but in your mental kite. Um, and uh, and Hashem should continue to bless you as well. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you, and really, thank you so much for your time. I know how busy you are. Should be afraid of Chanukah, Chanukah Sameach, and uh, we should continue uh, just to go from strength to strength. Amen. But it really should be. Okay, bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildcast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.